0: There's a reality that's given. Keep your marker at Matthew 13, and let's go in our Bibles Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, I want us to see something about our future. There are two absolute certainties that are expressed in Hebrews chapter 9. In Hebrews chapter 9, that's a hard thing to say about absolute certainties about the future, because you and I don't know much about tomorrow. We don't know what the weather is going to be like. I mean, we can predict it, but it's not going to be for sure. We don't know who's going to win what sports team. We don't know what kind of condition we're going to find our co-workers in tomorrow. But there are two things we know with absolute certainty about the future. And here's what is said in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes a judgment. Two things. First of all, unless Jesus comes first every one of us will exit this life through the door of death. Every one of us one day will die. The second thing the writer says is that there is coming a day in which every single person will face the judgment. That's what I want us to consider this morning. We've got some notes. If you have them with you to write down, we're going to talk about what does the Bible have to say about judgment, specifically the judgment day. There's some subjects, and when they're delivered and when we talk about them, they they don't apply to everyone at that moment. We preach on marriage. Not everyone is married at that moment. We preach on parenting. Not everyone has kids. But this is a lesson that will apply to every single person who is present here today. Kind of like the sign at the ranch that said, Horses for everyone. Fast people, fast horses. Slow people, slow horses. People who have never ridden a horse before. Horses that have never been ridden before. We've got something for everyone today. And because of that, I would implore you today to pay close attention, very close attention to what the Bible has to say about, for certain, the day all of us will face together. We're just going to consider some simple questions, some common questions that are asked about this day. Let the Word of God be our teacher and find some answers. What can we know about the Judgment Day, unless we would just start right here. Well, what is the Judgment Day? When we refer to the Judgment Day, what do we mean by that? The Scripture defines it as such, It is a day, a time, an occasion that God has prepared in which He will judge the world. There are specific statements given, like <clears throat> like in Acts chapter 17, verse 31, which says, Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He will judge the world and righteousness. In fact, there's occasion when Paul preached to Governor Felix. It says in Acts 24 and verse 25 that as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and notice the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away from, uh, for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. There is a judgment to come, and as we'll get through our lesson today, for some, it can be a frightening occasion, and be a fearful thought, or it can be a thought of great joy and of confidence. One thing that seems implied in these passages, and we'll put a few more on the screen, this isn't a judgment of a few. In fact, it's not just a judgment of those who are alive today. There's a phrase that's echoed at least three times in the New Testament that Jesus is to judge the living and the dead. In Romans chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, it says, Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant hearts, you were storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath. And revelation of the righteous judgment, notice, who will render to every man, who? Every single person, every one. And Romans 14, verse 10, the same thing as that goat. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Who we all, every single one. Here's our phrase. Acts in verse 42. That he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead of those who are alive today and all who have ever lived before same thing in second timothy 4 verse 1 now paul says i solemnly charge you in the presence of god and of christ jesus who is noticed to judge the living and the dead one more time in the book of first peter chapter 4 verse 5 that they will give an account to him jesus who is ready to judge the living and the dead. All will stand before the throne of God. In fact, if your Bibles are open to Matthew chapter 13, fascinating if you give some time to think about it, many of Jesus' stories, his parables, find themselves wrapped up in the context of judgment or describing the judgment that is to come. I want to show you just a few that are similar in nature. And Matthew chapter 13, he tells a story about tares and wheat or a weed and some weeds that look like weed. They were called tares. When he gives the explanation as to what this parable is about, he says in verse 40 of Matthew chapter 13, So, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out, out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks, and all who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as a sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. It's describing a gathering of all who are together, righteous and wicked, and then a separation of those who are righteous from those who are wicked. The wicked are going on to punishment, and the righteous are going on to what is described as glory. The same kind of picture is described for us. If you look down at verse 47 of Matthew 13, It says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea, and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach, and they sat down and gathered the good fish in the containers, but the bad fish they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age when the angels come forth and take out of the wicked from among the righteous, and will throw them into the furnace of fire, and that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Same kind of picture. Gathering of all, a separation, some to something good and some to something bad. Go all the way back to Matthew chapter 25. Well, there's other parables that seem to be rooted in the context of the judgment day. The closest to these two, the closest in terms of a parallel between these two stories is given in Matthew chapter 25 when we find the story told beginning in verse 31. Matthew 25 and verse 31. It says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. As we work through through the story, what is found is that the condition for this judgment the reason for this judgment, the basis of this judgment, is how they treated the least of these. Their com- regard and compassion for those who were in need. And to the conclusion then, in verse 46, as that these who did not do these compassionate, caring deeds are going to go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous, in the end of verse 46, are going into eternal life. So you know some parallels. All are gathered together. Jesus is this judge. The angels are active in gathering all together to stand before this king, before this judge. There's a separation of all who stand before him, and some are going on to something great, and some are going on to something terrible. There's a picture that Jesus told often about this judgment. Ever wonder why, though? Like, Why, why a judgment day? Why do we need to have a judgment day? Why, why will there be a judgment day? an excellent question. And maybe the simplest way of trying to define this, because God has not explicitly said, there's coming a judgment day, and let me tell you exactly why there's a judgment day. What we know about God is that he is a good and just God. That's why there will be a judgment day. Because God is just, and because he is good. The psalm describes God as one who loves justice, and it defines it as this. He loves justice. Notice, and does not forsake his godly ones, right? Defends them, protects them, rewards them. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. Where's justice? Rewarding those who are righteous and punishing those who are who are wicked. You might also say from Psalm 89 verse 14 that the foundation of God's throne, in other words, what he stands upon, who he is, is righteousness and justice. And so Paul would would, uh, in Ezekiel 18, verse 4, as we realize the condition God has set all the way back from the very beginning, in Ezekiel 18, verse 4, it says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins will die. God has set the condition. The price and the penalty for sin is death. And thus, Paul draws the conclusion in Romans 1, verse 18, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God's wrath is revealed to deal out, to repay to man what they are due because of how they've lived. Back fact, in your Bibles, go with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. This one's not going to be on the screen. I want you to notice how Paul says this is what is right or just or fair for God to come in his judgment and to give to each person regarding what they are due. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 3. Second Thessalonians 1, beginning of verse 3, it says, We are always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you were suffering. For after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. You know, it's in verse 6, it's only just for God to repay. If God is just, you don't sweep sins under the rug. You don't turn a blind eye to crimes that were committed. Justice demands a response. In one sense, we tend to look at the judgment only in the negative sense. God is coming, he is the judge, and he's going to punish that which is wrong. He's going to bring about the right response to crimes that have been committed. Have you ever thought about justice or the judgment from the positive standpoint? You see it, and as we looked on the screen from the Psalms, you see it here in our text, that it's not just when God comes, he's coming with vengeance, or he's coming with punishment, if I'm phrased like what Jesus promised in Luke 6, verse 23, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. That if justice is truly giving a person what they deserve, for those who are in Jesus and are righteous, what is coming for them is is glory. It's, it's reward. It's, it's joy. In Colossians 3, 24, as Paul wrote to servants or to slaves, he says that you are to work hard, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. You're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Even what Paul said at the end of his life, he attached it to judgment, to the righteous judge when he said that in the future there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And so when God comes in judgment, when Christ comes, for some who are living in wickedness, there's justice and there is peace knowing that because here's the thing, you and I know justice is not perfectly met here under the sun. We can agree on that that there are some who have done some very wicked deeds and they've hidden from those deeds. And the justice system, which is put in place, is not a perfect system. And they've been able to get by and to hide and to cover up their deeds from men. But God will bring that to light and they will have to answer to the Lord for what they have done. But there's also such hope in realizing that all the good we're trying to do, though small and in measure, God sees it and God knows it. And God will respond in such a positive, amazing, beyond what we could compare way, with glory yet to come. And so there's good in knowing that the one who's going to judge us, the one who's going to be sitting on the throne is not a man. It's not someone we elected. It's not someone like us. It is, as described in First Peter 1 and verse 17, our Father who judges impartially. You can't buy off God. There's no favorites with God. God judges Fairly, he judges impartially. He was saying in the second chapter that he judges justly. Every decision is right. No one can say, that, that, that was not good. We watched the refs on TV. He missed that call. He missed it by a mile. There's no way. He was biased. None of that can be said with God. Every judgment, every decision is perfectly just. And that's what's amazing with our God. In the heart of our God is a perfect balance of what is right And fair, but mercy and compassion. What is said in the book of Jeremiah 17, verse 10 that I am the Lord. I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. I know you, I know your heart, and you will receive what is due. I think there's a comfort there. But there's also something convicting because of what Paul says, that the Lord is not deceived. He is not mocked, which means we can explain away our faults and our flaws to one another. We can have a sad story and dupe those in authority in our lives, but there is no one who can pull the wool over God's eyes. We can't get to the judgment scene and stand before the throne of God saying, I'll I'll talk myself out of this one. I've got this. God is not mocked. He sees the heart, he knows every person. That is the one who's going to be considering us in the judgment day. Well, if this is so important, then what are we going to be judged upon? We don't like that. I, I want to know if there's a test, what am I going to be what am I going to be tested for? I want to be able to study for this. If there's an examination, a work a work examination, what are they going to be watching? What are these managers going to be looking for? When it comes to the judgment day, what, what's God gonna judge us on? On what basis? On what standard? And to be honest, there's a lot that's mentioned in the Scripture. For instance, we're going to be judged by the book of life. In your Bibles, we're going to Revelation chapter 20 of this picture of the judgment that is to come. Revelation chapter 20 in your Bibles, not on the screen. In Revelation chapter 20, it says in verse 11 of Revelation chapter 20, it says that I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up their dead, which were in it, and the Death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. The death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Quite simply, whether we understand it or not, one of the standards of this judgment is, is this person's name, is our name written in the Lamb's book of life? Same thing is said in Revelation 21 and verse 27, that those who go on, only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life will go on to eternal life. Get a glimpse as to what this really means, what this book of life is referring to outside of these pictures in Revelation, like in Philippians 4 verse 3, when Paul says, Yes, I I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So those whose names are in the book of life are striving. They're working for the gospel. They are fellow workers with Paul. You're talking about people who know the truth, follow the truth, and serve the truth. You're talking about saved people. In fact, even in Revelation 3, right, when Jesus is talking to the churches, he says in verse 5 that he who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. We're talking about saved people. Those who have obeyed the gospel of King Jesus, submitted to King Jesus, are walking in step with King Jesus. Those are the people whose names are in the book of life. So we're going to be judged on that book. We're also going to be judged upon the words of Jesus. In John chapter 12, verse 48, Jesus says, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Here's a question for you. What words? Like, which words of Jesus are the ones we need to be paying attention to? That's the issue, isn't it? There are many today who said the red words really matter the most. If we could could lose everything, but we just had the Gospels, we would have what is essential. All that church stuff and stuff about worship and elders and deacons and authority, what we really just need is the Gospels. But here's the problem with that. You see, Jesus, who spoke in red, also said to his apostles in Matthew chapter 28, And verse 19 and 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Which means what? Well, the apostles who wrote these words, the rest of the words, are teaching the words of King Jesus. In fact, even Paul would say in First Corinthians 14 that if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandments. Which means what? what? What the Bible has to say about the church, what the Bible has to say about marriage and divorce and remarriage, what the Bible has to say, like in Ephesians four, about our language or our habits or our use of money or lying. Jesus is the Word of God. Which means every word matters. Every word matters. So, if Jesus says, you will be judged by my words at the last day, these are the words. That's why we talk about read your Bible and and know this Bible and and live this Bible. Jesus is not something to be adored and put on a shelf. And these are not facts to simply muddle around on Facebook and to impress people because we know certain information about Jesus. The gospel is to be obeyed. He is the source of salvation to all who obey him. Or in that context of judgment from 2 Thessalonians 1, that Jesus is coming to deal out retribution to those who do not know God and notice, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yep, the gospel is amazing. It is important, but it is to be obeyed. And there's commands to be obeyed, and there's laws to to follow. In fact, you remember the scene in Matthew 7 when Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father will enter? Every word, every word will be considered. How am I following, listening, obeying, submitting to the words of the Savior? And add to this that our deeds are going to be considered in the judgment. There's a statement given in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. That's echoed in Ecclesiastes in the grand conclusion. That is said, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. That's every one of us, every single one. For God will bring every act into judgment, everything which is hidden, whether good or evil, every deed, every action, everything I have done with his body is going to be considered before the judgment seat of Christ. And though, we can add to this our words. Because Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account notice for every careless word they speak, they text, they type, they tweet, they tick-tock, they privately message. Everything spoken publicly. Everything spoken privately. Everything uttered in the silence under my breath. Every word. God has heard everyone. Even our thoughts. Things we think are the most innocent because they're here. I've not acted on it. I've not said anything about it. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 5, Therefore do not go on passing judgment notice before the time. But wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring light, the things hidden in darkness, and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man will praise will come to him from God, even the things we think about. And of course, in Matthew 25, our treatment of others is going to be considered. If you notice the list on the board from the top to the bottom, our consideration is everything. Our consideration is our relationship with Jesus. Is he my master? Is he my Lord? Am I following and listening and submitting to him? And the bottom of the list is how I treat my neighbor, my brother, my sister, my fellow workers, those in life around me, and all in the middle is me, and all I do every day that God has given me under the sun. You see that parable in Matthew 25, the consideration beginning verse 37, it says this. The righteous is going to answer Jesus and say to him, Lord, when when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Does it matter how we treat our neighbor? Yes. Does it matter how we serve those who are in need? Yes. Yes. If we want to stand before the judgment in confidence. In fact, maybe one layer underneath all of this. Some of us were talking about this this morning. I don't know about you, but I don't want to stand before King Jesus and say, give me what I deserve. Give me what's fair. Even with Jesus and his blood, I'm going to be begging for mercy. But if I want mercy, then I've got to give mercy because the judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. All right, how much time do I have? It's a lot to work on. <laughs> how much time do we have to get all this together and worked on and corrected? I don't know. All we really know about the timing of when this is going to come is simply that when Jesus returns as a second, in 2 second Thessalonians 1, what we just describe as the end-time events will be initiated. Jesus will come, souls will be gathered, the angels will be reaping, and we will stand before the throne of God. But in terms of when that day will come, well, p- Peter said the best, that the day of the Lord, that event that'll prompt it all, it's going to come like a thief. You and I don't get messages from thieves. Got text message, I'm going to come and pilfer your house next Tuesday, 7 p.m. Thanks. We don't have that message. A thief isn't private. A thief isn't secrecy. A, secrecy. a thief comes when no one knows. That's when this day is coming. And notice it says it's a day in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intensity in and the earth and all its works will be burned up. Nothing the way we know it will ever be the same. Verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, notice. Since this is what's going to happen. This is not revelation. Right? This is not hypothetical. Since this is what's going to come, what sort of people ought you to be? How, how should you live? What, what kind of person do you think you ought to be? How should you handle your holy conduct and godless knowing this day is coming and it's coming when no one expects it? It could be today. It could be next year. It could be beyond our great, great, great grandchildren's age. And that's the point. It's not to live frightened. It's to live prepared, to live godly today. Will the judgment be the same for everyone? Not necessarily, because there are two groups described in Scripture who are going to have a stricter judgment than others, and this ought to cause us to be very cautious. This ought to cause us to look a little more intently. But the judgment, as we look at is pretty strict, and there's a lot that God is already considering on the board. Are there some who's going to be more strictly judged than others? Yes. Those who teach the truth and those who know the truth. Where do we get that from? Well, in the book of James chapter 3, it says in James 3 verse 1, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Who said that? An inspired writer, God himself. Those who teach the word of God are going to be held to a stricter judgment. Why? Because you're handling the words of life. You are handling truth. And to mishandle this can lead someone in a devastating direction with their soul. It is baffling that there are some who take this position, whether in a Bible class or in a sermon, and they say things that are completely unfounded in the Word of God, and when cited against or corrected, they say, Why are you casting stones at me? I, I don't get it. I was just teaching. I was just preaching. You're picking me apart. That's just not fair. There's a difference between stumbling and fumbling over our words. It's been human. And misleading those who are in the pews. This is no game. And when we go to someone who is teaching or preaching, and it's not by the book, that's not an act of being mean. It's an act of trying to save that person's soul because they're in danger. They're going to have to answer for that. If we teach and if we preach, we're careful, as Paul says, we pay close attention to ourselves and what it is we are teaching because, notice, persevere in these things for as you do, you will ensure salvation for yourself and for those who hear you. You are leading people to life. Ought to be but you could be pe- pushing people farther away. There's a strict judgment on those who teach the truth, but there's also a strict judgment on those who know the truth. There's a really painful passage that's portrayed for us in Second Peter chapter 2, when he says in verse 20, "...for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first." For, in verse 21, it would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than after knowing to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to the wallow in the mire. What do you think? You know the true? Which means you know what is right? Which means you know about Jesus and the cross and what he did for you and I? And then after knowing that, you go back to sin? After knowing what it took? After knowing what he gave, you're still going to go back to sin? He describes it as something absolutely horrid. If you have animals, I have an animal that's done this. It is the most detestable thing in the world. To see an animal go back to its vomit and it, eat it as if it's a three-course dinner. Can you feel the weight, though? writer would describe it this way. If we go on sinning deliberately... After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. He's not going to die on the cross again, brethren. He's not going to come back and do this again. That's it. He has given us Christ. He's given us the cross. He's given us that gift. And so for those who's going to throw that away and continue to live in sin, knowing this truth, what remains for them, verse 27, a fearful expectation of judgment and the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. You knew better, and you did it anyway. You knew it. You knew what he gave to you. You knew the cross. You tasted that goodness, and then you turned your back on him afterwards. There is a strict judgment for those who know this truth and turn away from it. We got to get here. There's a weight to this. There's a reason there are some songs in our hymn book we don't sing too often. But there's a sad day coming when the saints and the sinners shall be parted right and left. But the sinners shall hear his doom, depart I know ye not. It doesn't have to be that way. But I do hope in our few moments together we've had that if anything, maybe this has just caused us to catch our breath and to realize this day is coming. The things so often we avoid and push aside knowing they're coming, but we just don't want to think about them today. Sometimes we need to think about them today to be reminded of the kind of people we're called to be. In our Bibles, we're going to be in First John chapter 4. This is where we're going to end. In First John chapter 4, I want to see how we can walk this study off the page and live every day prepared for that great day. First John chapter 4. The way we prepare for the great day that is to come. And the way we're going to walk us off the page is by asking two questions of these three verses. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 15, John writes, Therefore, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us. Notice, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. How is it we could even be confident in such a day as a judgment day? Well, number one, the question I need to ask is, is Jesus my Lord, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. This is a lot more than just simply making a statement, a commitment putting something out for the world to hear, to see, putting it on my tag on Facebook, I am a Christian. There are some who profess with their lips that they are a Christian, but by the way they live, it's obvious that they simply are not. Their life betrays their confession. We're talking about someone who has fully given their life to King Jesus. He is my Lord, which means everything that I do and say, every path that I pursue is done so under the authority and the guidance of King Jesus. There's a passage given in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 and 2. Finally, then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus. Notice, that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you may excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of Lord Jesus. You see it? Those who have confessed Jesus as Lord, they abide in Jesus, and there's confidence in the day of Jesus. So what's that mean? Jesus is my Lord. He is my master. Everything I do, I do to be pleasing to him. I follow his commands. I listen to his word. I seek his will above and before all else. He is my Lord. Here's the reality and the balance we're going to have to strike. We are not saved, and our confidence, let's maybe say it this way, our confidence is not in perfect knowledge, understanding everything perfectly. And our confidence in the judgment is not about obeying this word perfectly. Perfect obedience, every step along the way. And our confidence is not in perfect godly living. But that doesn't mean that what I believe and what I live and godly living doesn't matter anymore. You see, even Titus 2, when in the context of grace, it says, As Grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. I love grace. We preach on grace. We've done series on grace. We've got a class down the hallway on grace. But here's the thing, brethren. There are many who say, grace exists. I don't have to worry about living perfect. That's right. You're not going to be perfect. But that doesn't mean it doesn't matter how you live. That doesn't mean that the book doesn't matter anymore. To, To see grace as this blanket for doing whatever it is you want to do or believing whatever it is you want to believe is making a mockery of God's grace. He says grace ought to be what motivates us to do it even better to live even more faithfully, to be even more devoted than I was before. And maybe even the judgment is what ought to do that. Since the judgment is coming, Peter would say in 2 Peter 3, verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, these things to come, be diligent to be found by him without spot, blemish, and at peace. Can you say, Jesus is your Lord? Will there be fruit in your life? Every day, tomorrow morning, Monday, as you go into work to school, is there any evidence to the way you speak, act, think, that you are under the obedience of Lord Jesus? The second question, brethren, my abiding in His love. Those He says are abiding in His love are in God, and God abides in Him. In one sense, abiding in the love of God is is loving God and loving others. The context would work this year in the greater context of First John 4. But did you notice how verse 16 began? It's not just loving God and loving others and obeying God and submitting to God. The first began by saying in verse 16, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. Part of this abiding in the love of God is knowing and trusting and believing That without Jesus, it's just not possible. It is not possible. We cannot attend enough worship services and take the Lord's Supper enough. We cannot know this Bible enough and know it so perfectly in order to stand with confidence in the day of judgment. We cannot so perfectly live day by day in service to God to stand confidently before the throne in judgment. God rich in mercy. Because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead and our transgressions made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. I realize all of that, and this contradicts nothing of what I just said. Because it does matter what we believe and it does matter how we live, because the Bible teaches it. But brethren, it does not say, by Jordan you have been saved. By your knowledge you have been saved. By your good deeds, you have been saved. At the end of the day, the only reason I'm going to stand confident in the judgment is by His grace. The confidence is not in me. The confidence is in that blood we sing about. That blood that washes me free from my sins. And I will show you any confidence that goes forward into that day, that great day, is going to be because of Him. His blood, His promise, His love is going to be in Jesus. I want to ask you to do something for me. Can be a little bit different I want you to look in your pew can you look right or look left for a minute don't look at me if you're looking at me you're not doing it right right now for a while just can you look at the faces of those who you're sitting with today just smile with each other you might make a friend I just want you to realize something every face you see right now is going to stand before the Lord Every single one. Moms and dads, I think in our minds sometimes we say, I just want my kids to be good kids. I want them to be kind. Kind to their friends and kind to their neighbors. I want them to be good students. I want them to work hard. I want them to do good deeds. To serve. But good people and kind people, good students People who served are not the same as saved people. Without Jesus, none of that matters. It doesn't matter how good, how kind, how serving you are. Without Jesus, none of that amounts to anything. Every face in this building, every soul will stand before King Jesus one day. Every single one. Paul preached to Felix. And when he brought this up, it terrified him. To the point he said, don't don't talk about it anymore. I, I don't want you to talk about it. And John brought it up in three verses. And he spoke about it with such confidence. This day is coming. Our brother Tony has been writing on Tuesdays for a while. And what he writes is just brilliant. I love, I love his mind and I love his heart. And it wasn't long ago. This is what Tony wrote. He says, my point is this. If we are living a life devoted to serving God confessing and repenting of our sins then the day of judgment should be a day we are looking forward to, to experiencing why? because the judge will be perfect and righteous the judge will be merciful and gracious and the judge is seeking to save not to condemn us I can't answer it for you but I do ask you to think today. We will stand before the throne of God. You will stand before the throne of God. I will stand before the throne of God. Does that frighten you at all? Are you ready? So anxious and excited to stand face to face with your God, not because of any good thing I have to bring, but because I'm not going to be standing alone there's an advocate who will be standing by my side and a Savior who will be there who will see me through. What will this day mean for you? Whatever it is, if there's fear involved, if you find yourself unprepared to meet face-to-face with God, then you don't need to leave here today without making a change. It could be if you've not obeyed the gospel, you know you're not right with God and you're still in your sin, then today, this day, This very moment, God has allowed you to live and to hear these words, and today needs to be the day you do something about it. You know the Bible teaches? That if you turn from your sin, you confess Jesus as Lord, and you are baptized, today you are adopted into his family, and you are one who is heading heaven-bound. If you are a child of God, if you are one of his people, and you have not lived the way you ought to live, and all of this is piercing your conscience today, then today needs to be the day that you make something different. Perhaps it is as we are going to sing this song, that right here in the pew, you confess what it is that's going on? You ask God for forgiveness, and before you leave, you get some help from the brethren and the shepherds here to make sure we're going to be living right going forward every day, ready for that day to come. Now, if you want someone to pray for you, or just to talk, if you want some help before you leave, this is that day. Brethren, God gave us today. What a day. Let's not waste it. If we can do something to help you to be prepared to meet your God face to face, let's do it right now. Let's not wait. Let's do it now. Let's do it as we sing and as we sing. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com questions at thebibleway.com We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can, but thank you for connecting with us.